0: Thank you, Darren. Uh, it'd be great if you can keep Psalm 2 open. Uh, that's where we're going to be focusing our attention tonight. And it will be concluding our extensive two-week series in Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, so, that's, uh, so that's exciting. But the, the idea of going to, uh, to Psalms as we lead up to Christmas is to get a fresh look at Jesus, not from all the passages that we're familiar with, but to go somewhere different. And that's what we've been doing over the last two weeks. So in this second psalm, I'm going to pray for God's help, that he would help us to understand Jesus afresh. Father, we thank you for the work you have been doing in our community. We thank you, Father, for the energy that we've expended tonight. We ask that you might give us strength to concentrate. Clear minds, soft hearts, open ears. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, be at work here. Take this word and challenge and change us we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I remind you, we have what at the end? Question time, and I would love for you to ask me your questions at the end. So as we're going through, if you have questions, jot them down, or if you've got a mind like a steel trap, just hang on to them, and we will hear your questions at the end. That would be fantastic. Well, tonight, we're going to be thinking about earthly rule, earthly rule, and how it relates to God. And there have been Lots of shuffling in our earthly rule of late. Does anyone know who the guy is on your left up there? Boris Johnson? Uh, so Boris Johnson has been installed uh, through a democratic process in, uh, in the UK. Um, so he has been put in. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic, something else has been going on. Does anyone know what's been going on there? Impeachment, yes not turning Donald Trump into a peach, but attempting to remove him from office. So, uh, installation on one side of the Atlantic, and further on the other side, they have got a desire to remove rulers. Look, this is the standard thing in earthly life. We have rulers that rise up, rulers that come down, and people who get very concerned about all of the rising and the falling. That's pretty usual. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to think, well, what does God, the ruler, have to say about all this earthly rule. And to do that, we're going to continue in the book of Psalms. Uh, Stuart gave us some great introduction uh, last week to the book, uh, the book of hymns, essentially, of the people of God. And uh, there are 150 of them, which is a very large number. Um, About half of them are written by David, so 73 of them. If you have a look uh, in your Bibles there, you can see under Psalm 3, can you see it says there, a Psalm of David? I hope you've got your Bibles open, you can see there, a little verse zero, uh, a Psalm of David. Now, 73 of them say that, but I'm going to tell you tonight that there are actually 75 of these Psalms that are David's Psalms, so exactly half are David's. How do we know, since it doesn't say that on our Psalm 2 here, who wrote it? Well, if we have a look in the New Testament, we'll actually see in Acts chapter 4, a little hint that will tell us who wrote this. So, A little part of Psalm 2 is quoted in Acts chapter 4 in this way. It says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So we can attribute this second psalm to David from the scripture itself, which is really helpful. Anyway, 75 of them are by David. There are six other authors or six other groups of authors um, in the psalms. And your holiday project is to go and figure out who they are. Isn't that that exciting? Uh, So here we are. We've got one of the Psalms, a Psalm of David, and we're going to have a look at that tonight. We're going to think, how does God relate to worldly power? How does the God who's in heaven deal with a Donald Trump or a Boris or a ScoMo? How how does God engage with the rulers of the earth? Well, the first thing we're going to see when we look at, uh, at the Scripture here tonight is that the rulers of the earth love rising and, and lowering people. Does anyone, does anyone know? I'm putting up a little screenshot here from a, a TV show I've been watching. Does anyone know what it is? It's called The Crown. Has anyone been watching The Crown on Netflix? Precisely no one. This is going to go swimmingly. Awesome. You have. Thank you. Uh, so in The Crown, it's basically the story of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, fantastic drama if you're into that sort of thing. And this little screenshot here is from them arranging a coup against the Prime Minister in England. A banker, a newspaper man, and they're deciding, will we overthrow the government in England? And look, I've got to tell you that the idea of having a coup actually has occurred to people on earth when it comes to God. Have a look with me at uh, verses 1 to 3 in this psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So what's a coup? A coup is unlawfully removing the government. That's what it is. And the interesting thing here to see is God's enemies are in denial. They're they're planning to have a coup. They want to overthrow God. But they're in denial. Have a look at verse 1. It says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot, what does it say there? In vain. There's no way it's going to work. Essentially, and if we think about this, this makes sense. Um, We are here on earth. God's in heaven. How likely do you think it is that kings on earth are going to upset the holy, awesome rule of God? Not very likely, isn't it? So even as they conspire, they're conspiring in vain. So so God's enemies are in denial. I want you to see that they don't only oppose God, but they oppose his anointed as well. Uh, In verse 2 it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, do you guys remember what anointed means? Anointed is taking a holy flask of oil and pouring it on the head of someone who's going to be the new ruler, the, the new king. And so the anointed one is one who's had oil poured on them in a special assembly where they're marked out as king. So the enemies of God are against him and against his anointed. And it's interesting to see that they see God's rule as shackles. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. It's really interesting. All throughout the ages, people have found God's rule. They just feel, I want to break free. I want to get free. And perhaps it was freedom that was the ultimate temptation for Adam and Eve in the garden. See, what were they told? What did the snake offer them? Yes, some fruit. But, but what did he really offer them? He said to them, you will be like God. You'll be like God. And that didn't mean that they would all of a sudden become strong and become creators of the universe. But what they would become is people who would get to make their own moral decisions and be in charge of their own lives. You will be like God was an invitation to say, get rid of God and run the plan yourself. was an act of ultimate rebellion. Get rid of God's shackles. And that was the primary first sin. But we've been thinking about getting rid of God for a long time. Have a look at this uh, old, I think it's 1960s, um, Time magazine cover. Pretty awesome, right? Is God dead? Well, it's a weird question. But essentially what it means is, can I live my life ignoring God? And there it is on the front cover of Time magazine. People have been trying to work out how to be free of God's rule for ages just like the kings here. So what's God's response to all of this opposition? Well, again, calling on the crown, which is going to work magnificently in this evening service where you all watch it and are familiar. Fantastic. Uh, You've got the royal family, right? And and most of us just want to be liked. So the the royal family is having a problem where people weren't loving them very much. So what did they do? Well, they decided to put some PR spin on it and they invited a documentary team into the palace because you guys all want to know what they do in their spare time, right? And so they filmed a documentary and they put it on TV and they went, everyone will love us. Complete disaster. In fact, they showed it once and then they, by royal decree, they banned it from ever being shown again because the reaction was so bad, right? So for us, we just want people to love us. But what I want you to see in the psalm here is that God isn't like us. God isn't like us. Have a look in verse 4 and following it, what happens here. The Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So what's God's response? It's actually quite strange. It's a little surprising. What does God do? Well, in verse 4, we see God laughs. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. Secondly, we see that the Lord rebukes. It says in 2.5, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And then it says God does this really weird thing. He installs, well, what does it say in verse 6? I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So what's going on? What's God doing here? Well, first, we see that God can laugh because of where his throne is. See, where, where are earthly thrones? Well, funnily enough, they're on earth, right? And it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He goes, oh, look at you down there. Oh, look at you. Are you raging against me? Well, is God threatened by earthly people shaking their fist at him? Just pause a little bit longer and think about it, church. Is God threatened by that? No, in fact, it says he, he laughs at them. God's rule is unchallenged by earthly people. Then we see he rebukes them. It's a response of an absolute superior. So so hypothetically, right, in my household, if I said, don't hit your sister like that, right, that would be a rebuke, okay? Hypothetical, of course, it would never happen in my household. But if I said that, right, it would be because I'm the boss. Well, as I said this morning, Kara is probably the boss, but I'm sort of the boss. Uh, And so I say, my word goes in my house because I'm in charge. Well, what does God do with the rulers of earth? He rebukes them because he is the one who is truly in charge. And then we see God puts a king in place. God's response to earthly kings is to go, well, do you know what? I'm going to put my king in place. I'm going to install my king on earth. And we see that he puts him in a place called Zion, which is weird. Where on earth is Zion? Well, Zion is the capital of David. You know, David became the second king of Israel and needed a capital city. And the capital was to be the new centre of Israel. Okay, Now, uh, when Australia became a nation, there was an arm wrestle between Melbourne and Sydney. Did you know this? To be the capital of Australia. And so it can't be in Sydney and it can't be in Melbourne. So what will we do? We'll put it nowhere. And that's how you get Canberra, right? Okay, Because we're going to be a country... And we need to have a capital, and so that's the... Now, David did something greater than that. He said, what's the best city in Israel? I'm going to capture it, and I'm going to make that my capital city. And so David made it the new center of Israel. Jerusalem becomes the place of God's presence. Not only the place where God's king rules, but the place where God says, I'm going to put my temple there, and in a very special and unique way, I'm going to dwell in this city. So when he says, I've installed my king in Zion, it's carrying all the weight of that, the capital city and the place of God's presence. Well, we see that God is sovereign. He's in charge. That's what sovereign means. He's in charge. Are we surprised by his response? Uh, By by which I mean, it says here uh, that God will rebuke them in his anger and terrify them in his wrath. That sounds pretty full on, doesn't it? rebuke them in his anger, terrify them in his wrath. Maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds very Old Testament-y. That's a real word, right? It sounds very Old Testament-y, right? God is angry in the Old Testament, and then he's nice and fluffy in the New Testament. Isn't that kind of the, That's the, what we think, right? But that's not true. God doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New He's the same God. We learn more about him in the New Testament, but his character doesn't change. So I want to show you a passage in the New Testament that uses the same sort of language that we just heard in Psalm 2. Have a look with me here at Hebrews chapter 10. It's a really surprising passage. It comes, admittedly, just after he's spoken of the wonderful grace of salvation in Jesus. But here's what it says. It says, For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, guys, I've got to say, I reckon that's probably the most scary sentence in the entirety of the New Testament. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because if you fall into his hands as an enemy, you will meet him with wrath. So don't fall into his hands. Because what God offers to do when He extends His arms is welcome you if you bow the knee and repent. You don't have to meet God as your enemy. You don't have to fall into His hands. You can walk towards His arms, offer your forgiveness, uh, offer your repentance, sorry, and meet His forgiveness. Be like the prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son? Some of you can't remember the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son, don't you? And what does he do when he comes back? He falls on his knees and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does the father say? You worthless thing, get out. Of course, we know the answer, don't we? But we should be surprised. What does he say? Picks him up, right? And he says, bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. We have to celebrate for my son who was lost has come home. Because that's the welcome that we know is ours in Jesus, right? But if we won't bend the knee, then this is the God that we will meet. A God who is angry. A God who isn't a pushover for those who oppose him. We need to rightly fear God. That's what this psalm tells us. Now, because I'm just tripling down on my Netflix uh, addiction here. Here's, here's some more uh, pictures. This is Prince Charles being made the Prince of. Does anyone know what he's the Prince of? Prince of Wales, as I said, the Lord of the Oceans this morning. It's a joke. If he's the Prince of Wales. No, that Wales is a place, right? He's being made the, the Prince of Wales. This is his installation. What do you need to do? What do you need to do at an installation? Well, if a king is being installed, you better make sure it looks royal and formal, right? There has to be lots of royalty and lots of formality because otherwise, if if I say congratulations, Michael, you can be front of the supper queue tonight. Thank you. Right, (laughs) kids. I hope you've all heard that. Okay, Michael first. Okay, now some of you might think that's actually a really big deal, but most of you go, right? We've just installed Michael, right? at the front of the queue in supper. But it's not a big deal. If you're making somebody king or prince, right? you better turn up the formality because it's a big deal. Now, here's the thing. Psalm 2, we believe, is an installation psalm for the kings of Israel. And so it carries these weighty words. So have a listen to what it says here in verses 7 to 9. I will proclaim the Lord's decree He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. See, in this psalm here, in these words, we see adoption. Uh, It says that you will become my son and I have become your father. Where does that idea come from? It comes from 2 Samuel 7. Now, when I say 2 Samuel 7, church, I want you to be able to go, ah, 2 Samuel 7. Yeah, you are onto it. Very good. So you have to say, ah, 2 Samuel 7, because it's such a significant passage in the Old Testament. So it comes from 2 Samuel 7, church. You sound very convinced. It's super important. Okay, I'll show you what. Show you what. Have a look at 2 Samuel 7 here. These are the promises that God makes to David, and they last forever. Have a listen to these words. When you and your days are over... And you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. This is God speaking. He says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What does it say there? Forever. Note this, note this. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. What does it mean? It says here the king to be God's king is to be God's son. To be God's king is to be God's son. We also see inheritance here. What will this new king inherit? I'll oh, make the nations your inheritance. Well, where does this idea come out in scripture? In Isaiah 49:6, we have this beautiful passage. It's talking about the king to come. And here's what it says. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribe of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The king we are looking forward to, God's true king, has rule over all the nations of the earth. What an awesome king. We also see power. He will be the one who will break them like pottery. We have again this wonderful Christmas passage. Hear it afresh in light of the fact that God's king will be great and powerful. In Isaiah 9 it says, For to us a child is born. You heard this before? A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on, see what it says there? David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now that's God's energy, and it would take 700 years from when Isaiah speaks for Jesus to come. But God has promised here a powerful, ruling king will come. This king will be, I made up a word, unopposedly powerful. What that means is nobody can pull him down. You can't be him. The king to come will be the one over all. Well, has anyone been doing any Christmas shopping recently? Has anyone done any? Not yet, my goodness. It's going to be crazy up at Norella tomorrow, I can tell. When you go shopping, you know, you go, I think I think I need to get a whatsie for whatever, you know? And you get there and you go, Oh man, there are seventeen Watsies. How do I pick which one it is? What's the perfect what well, hats are up here, right? What's the perfect hat? I don't know. We drown in choices and we have have you heard of this? Analysis paralysis, right? Too many choices. So you go and have a coffee and you think about it and then you go, Well, I know that I'd like that for me, so I might just buy that. And then you get back to the problem of buying it for someone else. Anyway, that's what that's what it looks like. So we have all these choices in life. But I want you to see from the psalm here, there is a much bigger choice that we need to make. Have a look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, there are far more important choices. We've actually got to decide, will we be with God's king, or will we stand opposed to Him? That's the choice we've got to make. And you can see here, God's reaction is surprising. First of all, he says to the kings, "You need to be warned. The, 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 the island inheriting um, rod-smashing sun is going to come. Earthly rulers, be warned. You need to be ready to serve." Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule. And you need to be ready to kiss. Hang on, what? Why does he say we need to be ready to kiss? It says kiss the son in verse 12. So what's going on? Well, firstly, they need to be warned because one day the earthly kings will meet their true superior. The son of God will return in glory and all knees on earth will do what, guys? They will bow and they will confess that Jesus is Lord and they cannot Not do that. They have to do it. You meet the risen Jesus when he returns, you will bow and you will confess. So they need to be warned. One day they will meet their superior. Secondly, this ready to serve is, you need to serve this Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. You know what it says, fear the Lord? It's supposed to be because he's awesome. We're supposed to go, God, you're so incredible. I serve with fear. Not because we're afraid. They will be turned away or unloved, but just in awe of his majesty. And what's this thing about kissing? Well, kissing, to kiss the son is to worship him. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing where, you know, someone might have a, a, a ring on their finger, and when they like a ruler, and when they come, you know, someone will bend their, their head down and kiss the, the ring of the... Have you seen this? So it's this idea of saying, I'm submitting to you, but I'm not in fear of my life. To kiss the sun is an intimate act. It's an act of worship and honor. And so, what we're invited to do is kiss the sun. It's it's not, you know, in any way lovey-dovey. It's an act of worship and intimacy. And so, your choice when you meet the son of God is worship or destruction. They're our choices: worship or destruction. I want you to see, though, it finishes with this beautiful promise. Have a look right at the end of verse 12. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's our God. If you meet him as Lord and Saviour, he welcomes you and will be a refuge to you. Well, how do we respond to the God that we meet here? Firstly, we need to work out, who is this king? Who was the promised king? Was it David? Well, David was pretty good. He did a pretty good job. He's kind of the first true king of Israel. I know he's the second king, but he's the first really good king. He's pretty good. But even he is flawed. David isn't the model king. Well, maybe it's his son, right? Maybe it's Solomon. Solomon's pretty awesome. And maybe Solomon even has the biggest kingdom of Israel that there is. But in the end, it's larger than David's, but it's still a tiny kingdom. And is Solomon flawed, everyone? I think that the thousand wives and concubines got a bit wrong after number one, right? He got massively off track and actually ended up worshipping other gods. So Solomon can't be the king we're waiting for. Is the answer Jesus, church, do you reckon? The answer, of course, is Jesus. But the real question, guys, is of course. But how? How is Jesus the king that we're expecting? Well, we actually see that in, uh, in Hebrews it says, in the past, that was the first reading we had, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in this last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. The Son of God has come. And he is the one who he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. See, Jesus is the Son who will inherit all things. Secondly, we see this. When Jesus comes... If we go to our Christmas story, what, what, who is Jesus? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Son of God on earth is God's Son. Amazing? He is God with us. And then at the baptism in Mark chapter 1, you remember, Jesus is in the Jordan River, the heavens split open, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the voice from heaven says this, You are my You're my son, whom I love. And these last words are so important. Does anyone know how old Jesus is when he's being baptized? He's 30. He's 30. Here's the incredible thing, right? I'm a little bit older than 30. But I reckon, I reckon, that if you spent a week with me, you would see me sin. Not not all the time. I don't do it habitually. I work really hard to not. But you would see me trip up. Jesus has been alive for 30 years when he's baptised. And the God who is in heaven speaks and says, I see you. You are my son, whom I love. What does he say next? With you, I am what? Well pleased. Why is that? Because Jesus flawlessly obeyed his father. Jesus is the flawless king that we're looking for. Jesus is the promised son who pleases God flawlessly. How awesome is that? So, who's Jesus? Well, let's ask our little crew who's Jesus? Jesus is Lord. He is, in any language you want, over all the nations of the earth, He is Lord. So what should we do with the information we found tonight? We know Jesus, as He goes, He says, "...all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you And Lord, I'm with you always, to the very end of the age." Our first response is we can choose to obey Him for the nations if they're going to be, if he's going to inherit the nations, how will that happen? You and I will win followers of Jesus from the nations, from the ends of the earth, even, I reckon it would have been from Israel in his day, Orem Park, right? That is the ends of the earth. There's some people in other parts of Sydney who think it's the end of the earth as well, it's amazing. Uh, So we could choose to obey him for the nations. Secondly, I want you to see, at the end, there will be a Look at this wonderful passage from Revelation. There will be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Another response we can have is we can choose to bow before him ourselves. How will there be people from every nation? You need to bow. I need to bow. Have you bowed to Jesus? Today is a great day to be saved. So you can say yes to Jesus today. Thirdly, I reckon many of you have already done that. Is that right, church? You have done that, haven't you? Can I encourage you a really practical application? Have a listen to these words. The God who you love, the God who you've bowed the knee to, this is what he says. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Those tired from carols, those terrified at the thought of Christmas shopping, those worn out by the end of the year, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. From gentle and humble in heart, and you will find how beautiful is this church. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, I want to encourage you to take comfort in our great God who offers here to be. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let him be your refuge this Christmas. Well, while the earthly rulers rage, God powerfully reigns. Jesus is our King descended and now ascended and reigning in heaven. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your beautiful Son. We thank you that He is our flawless King, and we pray that we might bow the knee to Him, that we might welcome Him as our risen Lord on the day He returns, and that there might be a great inheritance for Him from every tribe and language and nation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I know you've been itching to ask me lots of questions, haven't you, Church? So, this is your opportunity, Q&A time. Uh, you might like to ask me, uh, you can ask me anything, really. You can be from the, from the uh, sermon tonight, could be another thought you've got on your mind. Was it fair that we interrupted the Prime Minister's holiday? Uh, all those sorts of things, you could ask away. Someone got a question for us to get us started? My wife isn't here tonight to get us started, so someone else will have to ask the first question to get us started. Michael, you must have a question. No, Doug's got a question. This is good. Now, Doug, I've got to ask before you um, before you say, is it a question or are you going to help me um, learn some more things tonight, Doug? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, what have you got um, for us? Jerusalem. Yes. city of peace. Uh, that's what it actually means. Yes. David stole it off the Jebusites and it's been flattened, I think it's 17 times. Sure. How, if, how is it the city of peace? How is it the city of peace is part of the question. But is this because the earthly powers and authorities are trying to destroy the base of the king? Look, I think it's a great question, Doug. It is a very troubled city in any way that you could possibly think about it. Fought over, as you say, for millennia. Um, In what way is it the city of peace? I think it's the doorway to our peace in the sense that Jesus came and died there to make peace with God possible. So there's a sense in which it's the locality at which our peace arrives. But in any real sense, observationally in history it fails dismally, doesn't it? So yep, good, good, good question. Um, I believe it's the city of peace because that's where peace came to find us. So that's at least a hope. Uh, another question? That might be all we've got tonight then. It's all right. Um, you can come and ask me afterwards uh, if you've got a question from tonight that you would like to follow up uh, that isn't Q&A worthy. Uh, right now, I'm going to invite Michael back up and he will